Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 91 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today's episode is another solo episode where I share my own research with you. This time, I'm covering a brief history of espionage and covert operations run by or against North Korea. But before we dive into this story, I want to tell you all about my favorite fragrance for daily wear. It's called Novichok by Clandestine Laboratories. Novichok is distinctive and combines notes of cocoa powder, chocolate almond tort, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, tonka bean, Peru balsam, and musk tonkin. Unlike some of the other colognes I've worn in the past, I've found that Novichok stays with me all day, which was a pleasant surprise. If the name sounds familiar to you, then you might already know why I was so happy to find this company and support them. The name itself comes from the very well-known Russian nerve agent Novichok, which has been used in recent years in several assassination attempts, which I've covered here on the podcast in previous episodes. The name is spelled differently, but rest assured, once you put this on, you'll still make a killer impression wherever you go. Novichok is made in small batches by clandestine laboratories and, like their entire lineup, is available only via direct order. If you're not sure which of their fragrances is right for you, you can also check out the Discovery Stash. Six different mini bottles at one great price, which is perfect for finding your signature scent. So make sure to check them out, either via a link in the show notes of this episode at their website, clandestinelaboratories.com, or on Instagram, at clandestinelaboratories. The decades-long conflict between North Korea and South Korea has its roots in the final days of World War II, as do so many other topics I've discussed here. But long before the war began, the Korean Peninsula had already been occupied and controlled by Japan since nearly the beginning of the 20th century. The Korean people resisted the Japanese government, which responded violently time and time again. But it wasn't until Japan's military defeat in 1945 that Korea was finally rid of them. However, as Soviet troops moved in from the far north and American forces moved in from the south, the two superpowers came to a hasty agreement to divide the peninsula into two distinct occupied territories. Two American officials selected the 38th parallel on a map as a good place to cut the peninsula simply because it was located about halfway through the landmass and placed Seoul in the American sector. Joseph Stalin accepted the proposal without any major changes, and the future of the entire peninsula was essentially decided overnight. From there, as I'm sure you'll realize, the two Koreas went down two very different paths. Stalin selected Kim Il-sung to become the administrative leader of the new territory because Kim had been a reliable communist guerrilla leader during the war and spoke Russian to boot. The Kim regime became not just a totalitarian dictatorship, but a dynasty as Kim Il-sung's son and later grandson went on to rule the country. Now, I've previously discussed the factors that led to the Korean War of 1950 to 1953 in episode 25 with guest Blaine Harden. So I want to focus primarily on the events of the post-war period, especially the 1970s, 1980s and on. The war ended not in a surrender by either side, but in an armistice, which has at times barely held the country from returning to war with each other. Since then, there have been many incidents involving spies, saboteurs, infiltrators, assassins, and covert operations perpetuated by both sides. So here I'll highlight a few of the most interesting and most important events and personalities. As I've mentioned in similar episodes before, this is not by any means a complete accounting of all of the known activities that took place there over the years. And you might recognize a couple of big examples that are missing from this episode, such as the 1968 attack 
by North Korean commandos on the Blue House, home of the South Korean president. That's because I hope to do a full episode on that particular incident one day in the future. And if you haven't listened to it recently, although I'm sure most of you have, after this, you may want to go back to episode number 87 with Bradley Hope. In that one, we discussed Adrian Hong and his years of activism against the Kim regime, which culminated in a raid on their embassy in Madrid, Spain in 2019. That is one of my all-time best interviews, in my opinion, and covers a lot of amazing history about the Kim dynasty and their place in the modern world. One last note, I'm going to do my best to pronounce all of these Korean names and places correctly, and I've even had some help in preparing for this episode with a good friend on Instagram who is also a frequent collaborator on all things related to the Korean Peninsula. But if you've been listening for a while, then you probably know how much I love to butcher unfamiliar names. So any mistakes I make in this episode are mine and mine alone. One significant problem that the South has faced for years is scouts, saboteurs, and other infiltrators making their way around the DMZ to carry out any of a number of different missions or activities. There's no way to know how many of these infiltrators escaped notice, of course, but sometimes their missions go awry and they are discovered. That's what happened in July 1998 when the body of a North Korean saboteur washed ashore near the town of Chonghae. The saboteur's remains were discovered by a South Korean citizen walking on the beach on the morning of July 12th. Authorities were alerted and they converged on the scene and media crews arrived shortly thereafter, so there is actually a lot of footage from what was found on the beach that day. The saboteur was still wearing a wetsuit and two dive tanks since he had attempted to infiltrate from the water. He was still carrying a Czechoslovakian-made VZ-61 Scorpion submachine gun, an underwater camera, a hand grenade, a knife, and a radio transmitter. The Scorpion submachine guns were very common among North Korean infiltrators and submarine crew members in the 1980s and 1990s, and were recovered in the aftermath of several failed missions. The most famous one was probably the 1996 Chongnung submarine incident, which I'll talk about in a minute. These same infiltrators also frequently carried several different Browning design handguns over the years, including the 7.65mm FN-1900 and the 6.35mm Baby Browning. Some unusual choices, but I guess that they had been in North Korea's inventory for quite some time at that point. So shortly after the dead saboteur was found, a submersible vehicle, which was capable of transporting up to five divers, was also located nearby, which prompted a major alert by the South Korean government. Based on eyewitness reports, authorities believe that at least three other infiltrators successfully made it ashore. So a curfew was implemented and troops all along the country's east coast were put on alert. Just one month prior to this incident, a North Korean submarine was discovered entangled in fishing nets strung along behind a commercial fishing trawler. The nine crew members all committed suicide rather than be taken prisoner once they realized they couldn't untangle their submarine from the nets. These types of incidents caused a major rise in the tension between the two Koreas in the late 1990s and endangered South Korean President Kim Tae-jung's so-called sunshine policy toward North Korea, which was a diplomatic effort to use economic aid and other leverage to bring about a lasting peace agreement. A post-mortem examination revealed the saboteur likely died of a heart attack while he was swimming to shore and that he had been dead for at least 24 hours before he was found. The other divers who may have come to shore with him were never found. So you can see why there would be a significant amount of tension during so many different periods of time in South Korea about these North Korean incursions. However, there's one instance of South Korea planning a covert operation of their own, which went completely wrong in just about the worst way possible when a secret team of highly trained commandos went rogue and killed dozens of people in August 1971. 
The commando team was called Unit 684 and was formed in the aftermath of an April 1968 attack by 31 North Korean commandos on the Blue, Blue House, the home of President Pak Chung-hee. The number 684 signified the year and month of the Blue House attack and indicated the unit was clearly meant for retribution. Instead of using current military personnel, 31 civilians were recruited for a planned attack on Kim Il-sung. The initiative was led by the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, which originally planned to recruit prisoners awaiting death sentences, as Unit 684's mission was anticipated to be a suicide run into Pyongyang. Instead, I believe that they ended up using a lot of people who had some criminal records but were not hardened killers, and then they attempted to turn them into hardened killers later on, as you'll hear. The recruits trained for nearly three years on the abandoned island of Shilmido near Incheon. The regiment was brutal, and seven out of the 31 men died either during training or were executed for desertion or other crimes. The surviving recruits were completely cut off from communicating with family for the entire time and lived under inhumane conditions while they prepared for their mission. But as relations warmed up between the two Koreas, the mission was canceled. The surviving men realized that their three years of isolation and deprivation were for nothing. They may also have begun to worry that they would be killed rather than just released from service in order to keep the canceled mission completely secret. That's probably not surprising considering that several of their comrades had already been executed for desertion. So on the morning of August 23, 1971, the team turned on their Air Force instructors, murdering 18 of them on the island. The trainers had spent the previous night drinking together for the first time in three years and were completely unprepared for the violent mutiny. The men snuck into their commander's quarters and killed him in his sleep by hitting him in the head with a hammer. They then stole 120 rounds of ammunition and used that to kill 17 more instructors. A few survived by hiding in various places around the island. From there, the team made their way to the mainland and commandeered a civilian transit bus. They were heavily armed and wore army paratrooper uniforms and rode the bus into Seoul as alarms were raised across the country. Many people believed that another North Korean team had made landfall and the bus was met by military and police blockades once they reached the Yongdongpo district in central Seoul. A huge firefight ensued with dozens killed and wounded before the surviving commandos detonated hand grenades inside the bus. There are a lot of photos online of the aftermath of this incident, and the inside of the bus looked just like an absolute slaughterhouse, honestly. 20 of the 24 men were killed that day, and the survivors were sentenced to death and were executed the following year. Despite the high-profile gun battle on the streets of Seoul, the incident was largely covered up until the release of the hit 2003 Korean film Shilmido, which told their story. But for years after the trial and execution of the four surviving commandos, their families fought a legal battle to have their remains returned to them. The families finally reached a settlement agreement with the South Korean government only in 2010, nearly 40 years after their family members fought and died in Seoul. So back to the submarine incident that I mentioned earlier. From mid to late September 1996, one of the biggest incidents since the armistice took place. It began with a failed reconnaissance mission by North Korean commandos which spiraled out of control and led to dozens of casualties on both sides. Near midnight on the night of September 15th, a Sang-O-class submarine with a 21-man crew transported three operatives from the Reconnaissance Bureau, or Ribu, to a location near the town of Chongnung on South Korea's east coast. Besides the crew and the commandos, the sub also carried the director and the vice director 
of the Maritime Services Department of the Reconnaissance Bureau. Compared to a U.S. Navy submarine, the Sangha class was very small. They only weighed around 325 tons and normally had a crew of 15 sailors. The commando team swam to shore, escorted by two scuba-qualified crew members, and stashed their equipment before setting off on a scouting mission. They intended to return within 24 hours to be exfiltrated, but for some unknown reason, they missed the planned rendezvous with the sub the following night. The sub returned again 24 hours later, according to the plan, but this time it ran aground near the shore after its propeller became jammed with seaweed and stranded the crew. They tried to free the sub, but were unable to find a solution. Then, before sunrise, a taxi driver passing by noticed a suspicious group of men sitting near the road, all of them with short, military-style haircuts and wearing nearly identical uniforms. He dropped off his passenger a few minutes later and went back to the area, which, in hindsight, could have cost him his life. All of the men he'd seen before were gone. But he got out of the taxi and walked down to the beach where he was able to make out the silhouette of the grounded sub just a few yards offshore. He quickly drove to the local police station and alerted the officers of what he had found there. At almost the same time, a patrolling sentry from an army unit called the Iron Wall Unit saw the submarine from a distance. He called it in as well, and his platoon quickly closed in on the submarine. So both the local police and military were aware of the sub very quickly after it ran aground. Within a few hours, soldiers and police were swarming the area. By that time, the crew had fled the area after setting a fire inside to scuttle the submarine. Twenty-six armed North Koreans were now on the loose somewhere in the south. By early the next morning, a massive search effort began in a 50-kilometer radius from the sub. Tens of thousands of soldiers and police searched for the infiltrators, aided by tracking dogs and helicopters. Roadblocks were set up everywhere, and special forces teams formed quick reaction forces to respond to any potential sighting. The South Korean Navy also set up a blockade to ensure no more subs enter the region. The sub's Hellman's were was the first of the North Korean crewmen to be found, and he was captured on his own later that first day after a farmer reported a strange man had approached his farm. His name was Lee Kwang-soo, and he'd approached the farm in search of food. Because of his own ignorance of the much better quality of life in South Korea, he had assumed that a home in a rural area wouldn't have a telephone, as was the case in the north. But while he sat there eating something, the farmer called the authorities, and he was quickly detained. E was interrogated and initially claimed that the sub had been on a training mission off the coast, but engine trouble caused it to drift into shallow waters where it ran aground. He didn't say anything about the commandos or the whereabouts of the others, nor did he provide any details of the mission to the authorities. However, he eventually gave up details of the mission after some prodding, including the total number of personnel on board the sub and the purpose of their reconnaissance mission, which was to scout nearby military and naval installations. Around the same time that the helmsman was captured, the bodies of 11 crew members, including the sub's captain, were found on a nearby mountain trail, all of them with multiple gunshots to the head. It's still not totally clear why they were all killed, but some theories include that it was a punishment for running the sub aground and causing the mission to fail, or alternatively, that the crew members who had the lowest chance of successfully escaping back across the DMZ were killed so as to not slow down the rest. There's also a highly plausible theory that they volunteered to be killed in order to prevent their own family members back home from suffering any consequences for the mission's failure. That was a hallmark of North Korean government governance, so it's certainly feasible. Over the next two weeks, gunfights took place across the region as the remaining crew broke into small teams, murdering civilians who discovered them, and fighting to the death when they were finally cornered. Seven of the escaping sailors were killed in three separate firefights on September 19th. 
The first South Korean soldier to die was killed on September 20th when he fast roped down from a hovering helicopter to search for two of the sailors who had recently been spotted in the area. Unfortunately, they were hiding right next to the area where he landed and shot him in the head the moment he hit the ground. The remaining sailors were hunted down in ones and twos and killed immediately and were not given a chance to surrender after that. Along the way, several more South Korean soldiers and at least one policeman were killed in firefights and one was killed in a friendly fire incident. By early October, only the three Ribu commandos remained at large. They were the most physically fit, best trained of all North Korean SOF units and possessed South Korean uniforms and M16 rifles. Nonstop media coverage of the entire search operation allowed the North Korean government to get hourly updates on what areas were being searched and by which units. So the Ribu commanders would then receive coded radio transmissions, which directed them away from their pursuers. Then on November 5th, 51 days after they first came ashore, two of the commandos were caught just 10 kilometers from the DMZ. It was this pair that had killed Sergeant First Class E, the first South Korean soldier to die during the operation. They had also murdered three civilians who stumbled onto them while out gathering mushrooms on October 8th in order to prevent those civilians from alerting the military to their location. Before they died in that final firefight, the two Ribu commanders killed three soldiers and wounded at least seven more. The last commando, named Ri Chol Jin, was never found. He is believed to have successfully escaped and evaded back to North Korea, the only one among the 26 men sent on the futile mission who wasn't killed or captured. In the immediate aftermath, the North Korean government offered an incredibly rare public statement of regret that the incident occurred, although they stopped short of making an outright apology. In response to this statement, the South Korean government then repatriated the remains of the 24 sailors and commandos who'd been killed. This was the first time this had ever occurred, despite the many previous incursions and covert operations the North had conducted against the South. The helmsman who was captured on the first day, Lee Kwang Su, went on to defect to South Korea and even became an instructor for the Navy. He was allowed to gradually integrate into society and gave a few interviews over the years. He reported that due to the secretive nature of his assignment to the Maritime Division of the Reconnaissance Bureau, his wife had been chosen for him by the government, and even then, he'd only been allowed to see her one day a month. The rest of his time was spent training in isolation from his family. The submarine itself was later recovered and is now on display at the Tonghil Unification Park, not far from where it was first discovered. Not all of North Korea's operations have taken place in the South, of course. They have personnel stationed all over the world, often operating out of the handful of embassies North Korea staffs in the few countries with which they maintain diplomatic relations. These embassies are in almost all cases a major nexus for criminal activity. Because the entire country is so short of funding, its embassy personnel are expected to not only generate revenue to fund their own embassies, but to send money back to North Korea by any means available. This often includes black market trading in cigarettes or other contraband, and drug trafficking as well with the personnel involved using their diplomatic immunity from prosecution to the fullest extent possible. Front companies operating out of the embassies are a major source of income for the Kim regime. One of the best examples of these activities occurred in the mid-1980s when dozens of American-made Hughes MD-500 helicopters were secretly purchased by North Korea in one of the largest illicit arms deals in history. Two American brothers named Ronald and Monty Simler were involved in the transactions as the owners of Associated Industries in North Hollywood, California. They arranged the purchase of 86 MD-500s from Hughes Helicopters Incorporated 
which would be shipped to Europe through a Berlin-based export firm in which they also secretly owned a majority share. The official stated end users were multiple companies in Japan, Nigeria, and elsewhere. But in reality, the helicopters had been purchased by the Korea Mangyong Trading Company, a business based out of the North Korean embassy in Berlin. Every day, you're under attack, whether you realize it or not. Your digital devices contain your entire life, your finances, your conversations with friends and family, your interests, and even your movements. And all of that is vulnerable to an ever-expanding class of criminals, scam artists, hackers, and even governments. You don't want to leave your data security entirely in the hands of your ISP, or anyone else for that matter. It's up to you to protect yourself using a multi-layered defense strategy. Silent offers you the protection you need to keep your data and devices secure from wireless threats. Their multi-shield technology blocks cellular signals, GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, EMP, RFID, NFC, and more. Silent's lineup includes everything from signal-blocking wallets all the way up to 40 cubic liter Faraday duffel bags. When you're geared up with Silent, you'll be truly disconnected, undetectable, untraceable, and unhackable. And you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order from Silent. Find them at slnt.com. That's slnt.com. The helicopters were delivered by Hughes in six different shipments between 1983 and 1985 but various strategies were undertaken by the Semler brothers to secretly deliver them to North Korea. For example, 15 of the helicopters were offloaded in the port of Rotterdam, Netherlands, for maintenance work, but were then transported on trucks to a Soviet freighter in the same port, which subsequently carried them all the way to North Korea. The MD-500 helicopters were identical to those already in use by the Republic of Korea Army and Air Force, so North Korea could potentially try to use these aircraft to mimic South Korean military flights and transport commandos across the DMZ undetected. The South Korean government became so concerned by this possibility that they moved all of their own MD-500s away from the DMZ to avoid misidentification of infiltrating North Korean helicopters. The Semler brothers in California were investigated and eventually indicted for their role in the scheme, for which they profited more than $5 million before being caught. Ronald was sentenced to three years in prison, and Marty to just a single year. After they were released, they continued doing business in North Hollywood, despite other legal problems that cropped up over the years. Ronald and his family owned Saddle Rock Ranch in Malibu, California, which has been a filming location for many television series and movies over the years from the 1930s through the present day. The helicopters themselves were not seen again by Western observers until July 2013, nearly 30 years after they were first delivered, when they flew over a military parade in Pyongyang. It's not clear how many of the helicopters are still airworthy, but it's suspected that some of them were used for parts to keep a fraction of the fleet flying over the past nearly 40 years. There are varying stories regarding how the U.S. government discovered the helicopters were bound for North Korea in the first place. One of the prevailing reports is that the CIA had bugged the North Korean embassy in Berlin, but did not initially share the intelligence with other agencies in order to protect the secret audio surveillance operation. I'm not sure if we'll ever know the truth of that or not. On another occasion, in 2001, a North Korean spy ship was discovered and engaged by the Japanese Coast Guard in what would become known as the Battle of Amami-Ushima. The 98-foot North Korean vessel, which was later identified as the Chongyu 3705, was spotted near the island of Amami-Ushima, south of the main Japanese island chain, but inside of their economic exclusion zone. The ship had the appearance of a Chinese fishing trawler, 
but was heavily armed with a double-barreled 14.5mm ZPU-2 anti-aircraft gun, which was mounted on rails, allowing it to be hidden inside the ship until it was needed. After the Chengyu was intercepted and hailed by the Japanese Coast Guard, it sped up to 33 knots, which was significantly faster than a typical fishing trawler was capable of. Four Japanese Coast Guard vessels took up the pursuit and fired a warning burst, which was ignored at first. But the North Korean crew soon began firing back at the pursuing Japanese cutters. Eventually, the Coast Guard received permission from their chain of command to return fire with their 20mm cannons, and over 1,000 rounds in several different calibers were exchanged by both sides. Six hours after it was first spotted, the Changyu 3705 caught fire and sank. There were several explosions on board as it sank, which were believed to be from self-destruct mechanisms, parts of which were later recovered from the ocean floor. None of the estimated 15 North Korean crew members aboard were successfully rescued, partly due to the low light and rough sea conditions, although two bodies were later recovered. In 2003, the Japanese government raised the ship from the ocean for a thorough examination. They discovered that the ship wasn't simply a converted or modified fishing trawler, but a purpose-built ship designed from the outset for special operations. Its entire design was intended to fool outside observers as to its true purpose. Above the waterline, the hull resembled a common fishing trawler for that region. But below the waterline, it had a V-shaped hull to allow it to reach much higher speeds than a mere fishing trawler. A rectangular iron frame was also installed on the stern around the ship's registration number, which allowed the crew to hang a fake registration number plate when necessary to disguise the ship's origin and ownership. There were orange flotation devices on board with the name Mese Maru in Japanese written on them, as well as printing blocks so the crew could quickly paint another name on the hull whenever needed. The stern was also equipped with dual watertight hatches to permit the entry and exit of a smaller watercraft. These hatches were opened via a compressed air cylinder rather than manually. The boat hidden inside the Changyu 3705 was just 33 feet in length and could carry up to 10 personnel. It was presumably used for approaching the shoreline for infiltration or exfiltration of personnel, all the while disguised as a small fishing boat. Its bridge, masts, and radar were all detachable to further change its appearance as needed. It was also found with a diver's motorized scooter device to allow a diver to travel great distances before discarding the scooter near the shore. Multiple weapons were recovered from the wreckage, including an 82mm B-10 recoilless rifle, an SA-16 man-portable anti-aircraft missile launcher, two rocket-propelled grenade launchers, a 7.62mm PKM light machine gun, and several 5.45mm Type 88 rifles, plus explosives. Besides the weaponry, the Coast Guard also found scuba equipment, detailed maps of the Kagoshima Prefecture, which included the island of Amami Ushima, radios, documents, and a small inflatable dinghy, secondary to the larger watercraft hidden inside. Although the Chengyu was identified as a spy ship, it's not known what its exact mission was at the time it was engaged and sunk. None of the crew survived to be interrogated, which added to the mystery surrounding the battle. But besides maritime espionage, North Korea also has a well-documented history of using disguised fishing trawlers and submarines in the region for drug smuggling, human trafficking, and inserting agents into Japanese territory. The remains of the Chengyu are now on display at the Japanese Coast Guard Museum in Yokohama. If you want to see it but won't be traveling to Japan anytime soon, you can go to their website to see lots of high-quality photos and descriptions of the wreckage and the equipment discovered on board. In 2011, a North Korean defector was discovered and arrested while carrying disguised weapons on his way to a meeting with another North Korean defector. The arrested defector, who was identified by the name An in media reports afterwards, was a former commando 
and had defected to South Korea years before. It appears he was, in fact, a sleeper agent waiting to carry out the orders of the Kim regime when the time was right. The man he was sent to kill was another defector and a very high-profile anti-North Korean activist named Bak Sang-hak. Bak's father was a North Korean government worker stationed in Japan who decided to arrange for his family's escape in 1997. He, his mother, brother, and sister all made their way to China and flew from there to South Korea after his father made arrangements with contacts in both countries. But the Kim regime soon learned what had happened, and as punishment for their escape, Bak's fiance, who remained in the North, was beaten so severely that she became unrecognizable. At least one of his uncles were also executed, as the North often publishes, excuse me, punishes extended family members for the crimes of their relatives and even for the crimes of their ancestors. Bach began his activism against the North in 2003, and by 2006, he became the chairman of the Democracy Network Against North Korea Gulag. A few years later, he formed an organization called Fighters for a Free North Korea. One of his primary means for pushing back against the North Korean government was a highly controversial program he created. Bach and his fellow activists would launch balloons carrying payloads filled with propaganda leaflets, USB drives, currency, and other banned items into North Korea to circumvent the Kim regime's censorship of foreign information. The balloons followed the winds north and released their payloads on timers, which were set to ensure delivery all the way to the capital city of Pyongyang. Due to the significant amount of media attention each balloon launch received, Pak eventually came to be known as Enemy Zero to the North Korean government. A few years later, in 2001, the former commando An contacted Pak under the, disguise, under the guise of wanting to assist with his activism efforts and set up an in-person meeting at a subway station for the following week. However, South Korea's National Intelligence Service contacted Pak immediately afterwards and warned him not to attend the meeting. It's not clear how the NIS was aware of An's intentions, but it is certainly likely that they kept him under close surveillance ever since he defected. When An arrived at the subway station for the meeting, he was arrested immediately. When he was searched, he was found to be carrying two Parker fountain pens, one of which contained a poison-tipped needle and another which fired a poison-tipped bullet. He also had a flashlight, which was a disguised three-barreled pistol which fired through holes in the lens cover. The South Korean government later demonstrated the flashlight gun for international media and test-fired one of the three barrels at a firing range. In the footage from the test-firing, you can clearly see the bullet start to tumble as soon as it leaves the barrel, and it strikes nearly 12 inches to the right of the center of the target, which is only about 10 yards away. So it wasn't an accurate weapon at all. But if An had been standing face-to-face -face with Park with the flashlight in his hand, accuracy at that distance wouldn't really have mattered. An was sentenced to four years in prison and ordered to pay a fine of about $10,000, which was the same amount he was paid for assassinating Park. And Park Sang-hak himself continued his activism against the North Korean government, undaunted by the assassination attempt. In 2014, he dropped approximately 100,000 copies of the American comedy film The Interview into North Korea, which detailed a successful assassination plot against Kim Jong-un. However, since March 2021, a new law forbids balloon deliveries to North Korea as an unnecessary provocation. Pak defied this law just as he defied the North Korean government and continues to send information and contraband payloads north even though he's been threatened with arrest and jail time. Besides trying to learn about military capabilities and political intentions in the South, North Korean spies also work to gain access to technology that would be useful to the regime, just as nearly all other countries do. In 2011, a pair of them were caught in the act of photographing secret documents related to missile technology in a sting operation by Ukrainian counterintelligence agents.
the two men named Ri Tae-gil and Ryu Song-chol were both assigned to the North Korean trade delegation in nearby Belarus. They were caught on a hidden camera in a dingy garage in the city of Dnipro, Ukraine, home to the Yusnoi Design Bureau and Yusmash factory, which designed and built Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles during the Cold War. According to reports by the Ukrainian government, the men offered an employee at the Design Bureau $1,000 for classified dissertation titled Forecast Methods of the Performance Capability of Capillary Intake Devices in the Fuel Tanks of Space Vehicles. The employee reported the offer back to security personnel, and a sting operation was set up to catch the spies in the act using a convincing forgery of the dissertation that they were asking for. Hidden cameras were set up in the garage and outside, and the footage was later released to the media. The two men were clearly seen examining documents and speaking to their contact just before Ukrainian authorities burst in and detained both of them. The two men were sentenced to eight years in prison and served their sentences without any apparent problems. In fact, when the men were visited and interviewed by American journalists in 2017, neither appeared very eager to return to North Korea. They likely feared a more severe punishment awaited them for their failed missions. Despite the well-publicized arrests, international concerns grew that the surprising leaps in North Korean ICBM performance in the mid-2010s were due either to information leaks from someone within the Yusmash factory or even illegal sales of RD-250 rocket engines. The commercial enterprise had fallen on hard times by then with rocket production, revenue, and employee numbers all in freefall. The Ukrainian government strongly denied any such possibility and pointed to this operation and other North Korean spies they had deported in the past to counter the accusations being made by the international community. In more recent times, the Yusnoi and Yusmash facilities have expanded production to support the European Space Agency and partnered with Northrop Grumman to produce the Antares rocket. Although Ri and Ryu were scheduled for release from prison in September 2018, I couldn't find any further press reports about their fate since 2017. Whether they returned to North Korea or remained in Ukraine or elsewhere is unclear. In my opinion, it's possible that they were turned by Ukrainian or possibly even U.S. intelligence personnel rather than take their chances back home after so many years had gone by. Although North Korea is an incredibly dangerous place to try to infiltrate, it has happened in the past. A South Korean spy named Park Cheso infiltrated North Korea and even met with Kim Jong-il in 1997. Park joined South Korean military intelligence in 1990 and five years later was recruited by their civilian intelligence agency the Agency for National Security Planning. He was given a high-profile, high-risk mission to infiltrate North Korea, posing as a corrupt and opportunistic South Korean businessman and foster contacts with government officials there. Well, he succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Pak Soon began working for a South Korean company based in Beijing, which imported agricultural products. He made contact with various North Koreans there and began building a network. Through the judicious employment of bribery and favors, he continued moving up the ladder. His big break came when he helped secure the release from a Chinese prison of a nephew of Kim Jong-il's brother-in-law, which finally gave him access to the Kim family. Pak began helping the family facilitate the black market sale of antique ceramics to wealthy South Koreans providing them with much-needed cash. Eventually, he was invited to meet with Kim Jong-il himself in 1997 to discuss further ceramic sales. This level of access required Bach to do something that I don't think any of us even want to consider. He went to the meeting wearing a miniature recording device inserted into his urethra, the last place anyone would be willing to search. The meeting went off without a hitch, but later in 1998, Pak allegedly uncovered a plot by members of the South Korean Conservative Party to bribe North Koreans to stage a violent attack right before the upcoming election, 
which they believed would push voters towards their party, as similar attacks had in past. Years later, the scandal finally came to light, and Pac's name surfaced in the ensuing investigation. The conservative party was cleared by the investigation, and Pac was eventually convicted on national security-related charges, which he maintains were a politically motivated smear job. He spent six years in prison before being released in 2016. A 2018 film called The Spy Gone North about his mission to North Korea was one of the most popular Korean films of that year. Perhaps the most brazen North Korean covert operation is also one of their best known and one of their most recent as well. In February 2017, Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, was assassinated in Malaysia. And believe it or not, his assassins weren't even aware of who he was or even that they were killing him until afterwards. Kim Jong-nam was the oldest son of Kim Jong-il, and for a number of years, he was thought to be the eventual successor to his father. But he fell out of favor around the year 2000 or 2001, and we now know, of course, that his younger brother would go on to lead the country. Kim Jong-nam embarrassed the family after being arrested on a trip to Japan to visit Disney World, of all places. He eventually settled into life in Macau with his wife and son. From there, he still lived a high-flying lifestyle with lots of gambling and international travel. And according to later reporting by the Wall Street Journal, he supported that lifestyle by working with the Central Intelligence Agency, and probably with other intelligence agencies as well, including the Chinese Ministry of State Security. Because he was such an embarrassment to his younger brother's government, he was targeted for assassination and followed by North Korean agents for years. At least two assassination plots in China were foiled in 2012 when the intended assassins were caught by police. But the North Korean Reconnaissance Bureau was undeterred. They hatched a plan that would be considered outlandish and farcical if it weren't for the fact that it worked. Two foreign women were recruited for the mission, but they weren't told they would be carrying out a political assassination. Instead, they thought they were being cast in a Japanese comedy TV show where they would play pranks on unsuspecting people in public spaces while being filmed. Siti Aisha was Indonesian but lived in Malaysia, and Don Thi Hong was Vietnamese. They were both approached and recruited by a presumed North Korean operative they knew by the name James. They performed the prank on several different occasions by putting a substance similar to a cosmetic cream on their hands and then smearing it on the face of a person walking through the airport after they were pointed out by James. Less than two weeks before the attack on Kim Jong-nam, the Vietnamese woman, Doan, carried out one of the pranks in Hanoi Airport against a Vietnamese government official. The women were paid less than $100 for each prank, but were always happy for the chance to be in a TV series. On February 13, 2017, Kim Jong-nam was passing through the airport in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, on his way home to Macau. He'd just come from a meeting with his CIA handler a few days earlier. Kuala Lumpur was a perfect place to carry out the attack because North Koreans could travel there without a visa, one of the only countries in the world where this was true. Siti and Don were both waiting for him there with no idea of what they were actually about to do. They met James at the airport, unaware that he had an entire team of North Korean agents with him as well. This time, when James pointed out the target for the prank, instead of putting a cosmetic cream on their hands, he sprayed a different, oily substance on each of their hands. The new chemicals were binary compounds which, once they were combined, became VX nerve gas. Since each of the women only had one compound on their hand, they were individually safe. Security camera footage at the airport showed them approaching Kim Jong-nam one after the other and smearing his face with the chemicals. He was completely unprepared and didn't realize what had happened at first, just as they did not. But he had every reason to be paranoid, of course, and quickly approached airport security to report that something strange had happened. They began to escort him to an emergency aid station at the airport, but within minutes, the nerve gas began to take effect. He began to stumble as he walked 
then collapsed completely once he reached the aid station. An ambulance was called, but he died on the way to the hospital 15 minutes after the attack. Once authorities realized who he was, an investigation led them to the two women who were shocked and horrified at what they'd done. They were both put on a highly publicized trial, but the charges against Siti were dropped in 2019 and she was released from custody. Doan pled guilty to a lesser charge of causing injury and was freed a few weeks after Siti was released. The North Korean agents were identified on CCTV footage, but all escaped after the attack, so none of them suffered any known consequences. If you want to hear more about the aftermath of Kim Jong-nam's death, including what happened to his wife and son, listen to episode 87 of the podcast with Bradley Hope. So I think it's clear to everyone listening and to me as well that there is anything but a Cold War going on with North Korea currently, and it's always come and gone in waves and cycles, really. So it's really hard to say where this relationship will go in the future, the relationship with the rest of the world, and in particular with South Korea. So I can tell you that I anticipate doing future episodes about North Korean covert operations and South Korean espionage and more of those sorts of stories in the near future. So please stay tuned as I try to line up more great guests to talk about this, because it is another endlessly fascinating topic of discussion for me, as I'm sure that it is for you. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.